millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome back to Misconduct. I'm Eileen, and joining me as always is Colleen. How you doing, Colleen? I am good. This is episode 59, which is crazy. I can't believe we're already at nearly 60 episodes. But um, I am good. I have nothing new to report, but I am ready for our L.A. trip. I'm excited to see Lainey from True Crime Fan Club, and then I found out Haley from Murder Road Trip is going to be at the Gen Y Meetup, too. So I'm really excited about that, and hopefully some other Los Angeles podcasts will be there. Uh, but how are you? Uh, how has Rocket been dealing with the crazy rain? For those who don't know, Rocket is Eileen's cat, and <laughs> she cat. loves her cat a lot. Her wonderful cat. Uh, and she gets freaked out by the sounds on their roof. It kind of, like, sketches her out. But the bay is finally having its rainy weather, and we had, like, a pretty big storm over the last few days. Oh, she's actually, funny enough, she's actually okay with the rain, um, even though it's super loud on the roof. She likes looking out the window, though, at the rain. She kind of perches on this side table we have, you know, the one by the um, big window. So she kind of likes to look outside oh, yeah. at the rain and just watches the city go by. But yeah, I've been good. Just busy. I had a hugely busy week last week. Just lots of episodes to edit and it's billing week. So the first week of the month, first two weeks of the month for me are kind of really busy. So I was just nice. By Saturday, we just went and saw Black Panther, which was really fun. And other than that, just relaxed. Then I went on a ride today and that was fun. And I know we're going to be in L.A., so quick. I think it's, what, two weeks? It's crazy. I think so, yeah. And then CrimeCon is like, what, a month and a half after that. So it's all, I think so. yeah, it's coming up so quick. So we hope to see some of you guys there at both. But now let's get to today's case. So this week we're going to tie back into our very first episode, which was a two-part episode on Lonnie David Franklin Jr., who is also known as the Grim Sleeper. He was a serial killer in South Central Los Angeles who was operating for over 20 years, and for the bulk of that time, L.A. Police Department did not know he was actively killing women in his neighborhood. The bulk of the murders committed by Lonnie Franklin and the person we are discussing today took place in the 80s and 90s. During this time, the crime rate in South L.A. was very high, and the 80s saw what we now refer to as the crack epidemic and the lasting effects that have bled over into the 1990s. There is a huge increase in the number of missing and murdered black women in South L.A. during this time. So many of these women were turning up murdered in their own neighborhood that the community became concerned that there was a serial killer roaming the streets, but LAPD didn't really investigate it. It wasn't until the community came together and formed the Black Coalition Fighting Back Serial Murders and actively lobbied the LAPD to open an investigation that anything was done. To placate the Black Coalition fighting back serial murders, LAPD opened an investigation into the staggering numbers of deaths in the area, and they quickly said, yes, there is a serial killer operating in the area, and they dubbed him the Southside Slayer. 
and the case remained open, but no progress was made, only the body count increased. At the time we recorded our first episode, we were pretty flabbergasted that the community had to lobby the LAPD to do their jobs. After putting together this episode, we are still flabbergasted. Even more disturbing is the lack of action on the LAPD's part exposed several glaring issues with their approach to dealing with this community. Many of the women who were murdered were assumed to be either addicted to drugs, specifically crack, a sex worker, or both. Now, none of these things should affect how a murder is investigated, but unfortunately it did. And a lot of these cases were not taken seriously. In fact, murders that involve victims that were perceived to be either sex workers or drug addicts were written off as being, quote, victims of circumstance or they were, you know, quote, victims of their lifestyle. Mm -hmm. And then it also came out that the police department in general, not just LAPD, but like multiple police departments would refer to these cases as NHI cases. And NHI stands for no human involved. Disgusting. It is. And this really set the mindset and the tone of the situation. Communities in South Central LA have had a long, contentious relationship with law enforcement. And I I think for good reason. Mm -hmm. The LAPD has a very long history of excessive force when it isn't needed and indifference when police investigation is necessary. So who do you call when you know the police won't show up or they're not going to take your case seriously? And who do you call to report your loved one missing when you're afraid their case won't be treated seriously or investigated at all because of how they make their living or if they're using drugs, whether or not that's true? So that is an extremely brief history of some of the issues South L.A. faced when they were dealing with a spike in violent crime. It was this neglect that allowed for not one but multiple serial killers to operate unnoticed by everyone except the communities where the murders took place. And that brings us to February 3rd, 1998 in downtown Los Angeles. A security guard was working his shift and walked around the back of the building and came across a body of a woman. I've seen Paula Vance's age reported as 38 and 41. Her partially dressed body was found behind the building, and investigations showed that she was raped and strangled. Paula was not living in any particular place permanently and stayed around the area where her body was found. Police believe they had gotten a break in the case when they realized there were five security cameras in the area. Using the footage, they were able to piece together a harrowing scene. You see Paula and a large man coming into the frame, and then you see the large man throw her down. After 15 or so minutes, you see him get up and leave. Just when it seemed like they would be able to catch a glimpse of his face, he turns away and it's not seen. And the film itself is very grainy and the quality was poor, so what could have been a break in the case ended up not leading to any information that could point to a suspect. The DNA recovered from the scene was collected and put in storage, and then Paula's case went cold. Like we talked about in our Grim Sleeper episodes, LAPD faced some harsh criticism in the early 2000s when it became public that they had an incredible backlog of untested DNA and cold case murders that were sitting untouched. In some instances, these cases had been sitting in storage untested for more than 30 years, and it was this push to test the DNA backlog that led to this horrifying discovery The so-called Southside Slayer, named as the person responsible for the large number of murders back in the 80s, was actually the work of multiple serial killers, at least five, that were operating in the area and unknown to law enforcement until just now. So basically, the Southside Slayer was 
a a myth used by the LAPD to placate the Black Coalition fighting back serial murders, and the Southside Slayer story gave LAPD an out to try and save face publicly, but allowed multiple serial killers to murder with impunity. Paula's case was more recent, but it had fallen into this unsolved cold case category. When the cold case task force was looking for cases to focus on reinvestigating, Paula's case was selected because of the video evidence. One thing investigators noted was the entire attack lasted about 15 minutes, and it seemed like this might not have been the perpetrator's first time killing someone. So her case was officially reopened in 2001. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Despite taking a fresh look at the case, no new leads surfaced and the cold case remained open on the detective's desk until September 2003. Investigators had entered the DNA collected at the scene of Paula's murder into the state DNA database when the case was reopened, but it wasn't until September 2003 when the detectives were informed that they had a match. In 2002, a woman named Maria reported that she was sexually assaulted by a worker at a shelter she sometimes visited. Maria later testified in court that the man asked her for a cigarette while they were standing on the street. He then attacked her, dragged her behind a nearby dumpster, and raped her. For whatever reason, this man left Maria alive, knowing that she could identify him. He did threaten to kill her if she said anything, but she walked from the scene of her attack into a nearby police station and reported the rape. She was initially not taken seriously by law enforcement, and she ended up leaving when she was told by an officer to wait until they had time to take her statement. Maria was known to law enforcement because she had used and sold drugs in the area and she was often homeless. So the police kind of blew her off and she was offended. So she left. And I kind of get where she's coming from. You know, you yeah. come to law enforcement with a report of a violent sexual assault and you get told to sit and wait. And then she left and she actually went back to her shelter where her attacker worked and told another employee. This employee convinced her that she needed to report the assault and accompanied her back to the police station. That rape led to a trial and conviction for the man. 
When he was booked into prison at the beginning of his eight-year prison sentence in mid-2003, his DNA was collected and submitted to the state database. The DNA evidence collected at Paula's crime scene then matched to that man's DNA just a couple months later. That man's name was Chester Dwayne Turner. In addition to Paula Vance, Chester Turner's DNA was matched to another unsolved murder. In early November of 1996, the body of Mildred Beasley was found in some bushes off near the Harbor Freeway. The 45-year-old was found partially nude and was strangled. Mildred was married with a son and was last seen by her husband who had dropped her off to visit friends. It is not known how she crossed paths with Chester Turner other than they were in the same neighborhood. With three attacks, two ending in murders in close proximity, connected to one another, LAPD refocused investigation efforts to look into Chester Turner. They pulled unsolved homicide cases from South LA and they ran any available DNA evidence against Turner. We'll post a map that marks where Turner's victims were discovered so you can see just how close together these murders happened. Basically, Turner was killing in a four or five block span along the Harbor Freeway. Police connected another eight unsolved murders to Turner through DNA evidence. Now it was evident that LAPD had another serial killer on their hands. And even more disturbing, if Maria had not come forward, who knows when he would have been stopped. So we'll go through the eight victims who were connected to Turner in chronological order when their bodies were found. Unfortunately, not much is known about them, but suffice to say these women were more than just, you know, quote, a prostitute or just a, quote, drug addict or whatever other label was used to justify their brutal murder. These women had friends and families, and they didn't deserve to fall victim to Turner, and they did not deserve to have their cases go ignored for years. On March 9, 1987, 21-year-old Diane Johnson was found in an area of, of the road that was blocked off for construction. She had been sexually assaulted and strangled. Next was 26-year-old Annette Ernest, who was found on October 29, 1987, on the side of the road at the intersection of Grand and 106th. She was a mother, but she had been going through a difficult period in her life, and her mom had actually taken custody of her kids. She was sexually assaulted and strangled. Third was Anita Fishman, who was found on January 20th, 1989, and she had relocated from New York to Pasadena. She was just 31, and she had recently lost her home, um, and she was also raped and strangled. 27-year-old Regina Washington was six months pregnant when her body was found inside of a garage of an empty house, and she had been hung up by an electrical cord. I... Police noted that her death was exceptionally cruel, and the perpetrator, later identified as Turner, took time to stage the scene of the crime after assaulting her. Four years later, on April 2, 1993, 29-year-old Andrea Triplett was last seen getting into a car with a man fitting Turner's description. Her body was found behind a vacant building by a worker from a nearby construction site. She was raped and strangled. Turner later would attend the memorial dinner Andrea's mother held at her home after the funeral. Just a month later, on May 16, 1993, Desiree Jones, also 29, was found raped and strangled in a vacant lot. On February 12, 1995, Natalie Price was visiting friends in L.A. She left the home to find her jacket, believing she had left it somewhere she had been earlier in the day, and she never came back. Her friend found her raped and strangled outside their home that night. 
Lastly, on April 6, 1998, 37-year-old Brenda Breeze was found when a passerby flagged down a cop car to report a body in a porta potty Like the others, she was raped and strangled. And just reading through the victim list briefly is staggering. It's extremely disturbing to think that one man was able to inflict so much death and tragedy and fly completely under the radar. So who was this person stalking the streets of South L.A.? Chester Turner was born on November 5th, 1966. He was 37 when he was apprehended in 2004. He was born in Arkansas but moved to L.A. with his mother when he was young and spent most of his childhood there. He dropped out of high school right before he graduated, and that's when he started racking up charges on his rap sheet. None of his previous convictions gave law enforcement any indication that he would be a sexually violent serial killer or offender. That was until he was convicted of raping Maria in 2002. Until then, his charges were for drugs, theft, and parole violations stemming from his previous convictions. Turner was well-known in his neighborhood. Everyone seemed to know him. Uh, he was at the dinner at the Andrea's mother had in her memory after his, her funeral. His presence was not unusual at the time, but it's a real slap in the face to Andrea's loved ones after mm-hmm. the fact. So everyone knew Turner, and he also had a reputation that most people would mention when they were talking about him. Chester Turner was fairly unremarkable most of the time, but when he got angry, he was just a complete rage case. He would basically lose control of himself and fly into a rage, and you didn't want to be on the receiving end of it. When Turner committed his first murder, he was working as a pizza delivery driver. He was seeing a former high school classmate romantically, but their relationship was troubled. Eventually, his girlfriend became pregnant, and Turner became a father. He left the area, briefly, and moved with a girlfriend to Salt Lake City. He was only gone for a few months before he returned to L.A. In 1992, he added a charge to his list of previous convictions that deviated from his nonviolent, non-sexual crimes. He was charged with masturbating in front of a crossing guard. He was arrested, but released the same day. Now that LAPD had built a profile and gotten the background on Chester Turner, they tried to widen the scope of their search to try to identify all of his victims. On a hunch, LAPD decided to run Turner's DNA against solved and closed cases that happened in the area where Turner's victims were found. They got hits on three more murders. But the problem was, a man had already been convicted and served 11 years of his life for the crimes. In 1993, a man named David Allen Jones was charged with three murders, the murder of Deborah Williams, Tammy Christmas, and Mary Edwards, as well as the rape of a fourth woman named Sharon Mosley. Tammy Christmas was found in September 1992 near a portable trailer classroom at the 97th Street Elementary School. DNA evidence in this case was accidentally destroyed shortly after Jones's trial. On November 16, 1992, 32-year-old Deborah Williams was found in the basement of the 97th Street Elementary School. She had been raped and strangled as well. And then 41-year-old Mary Edwards was found a month later in a motel next to the 97th Street Elementary School, and she was also raped and strangled. Jones was arrested in 1992 on rape charges after attacking Sharon Mosley. He was interrogated at length, and during the process, he waived his Miranda rights and talked openly to investigators. They questioned him extensively on the three murders, and Jones eventually confessed to choking all of the women, but he said that they were alive when he left them. 
and his confession was used to convict him at trial. All of these women were found on or near the elementary school property, and Jones worked there as a janitor. When Turner's DNA was tied to the murders Jones was convicted of, his conviction was overturned. It also came out that investigators may have taken advantage of Jones' diminished mental capacity and walked him into a confession in order to close a case. Jones' murder convictions were overturned, but he was guilty of the rape of Sharon Mosley. He spent 11 years in prison related to the murder charges, and when those convictions were vacated, he was given time served for the rape charge and released from prison. And in addition to being released, he was awarded $700,000 from the city of Los Angeles for the wrongful conviction. Turner is considered to be responsible for all the murders, but he was only charged with the murders of Deborah Williams and Mary Edwards. He faced these charges at his second trial, but before we get to that, let's go through the first trial. And I did want to add in there, I forgot, we forgot to mention. So the reason he wasn't charged with uh, Tammy Christmas's murder was because Right after Jones's conviction, they got rid of the DNA evidence in her case. It was like accidentally thrown out, thrown away. Um, And so he's strongly considered, Turner strongly considered to be the suspect, but um, they don't have any DNA evidence to concretely link him to that case. Right. So back to Turner. He was charged with 11 murders on October 27th, 2004. He was charged with the murders of the first 10 women we talked about and the unborn child of Regina Washington. After a lengthy pretrial phase, the case went to trial in 2007, and the trial went to jury in late April of 2007. The jury of six men and six women deliberated for four days before returning a guilty verdict on 10 counts of first-degree murder. He was found not guilty on the murder charge for Regina's unborn child because the fetus was not considered to be viable at the time of her murder. After the jury found Chester Turner guilty, they recommended that he be sentenced to death, and the judge formally sentenced Turner in July 2007. In June of 2011, Chester Turner found himself on trial once again for four more murders. Two of these murders were for the murders that David Jones had been convicted of, but Over the last seven years, LAPD had connected another two murders to Turner. In addition to standing trial for the murders of Deborah Williams and Mary Edwards, Turner was charged with the murders of Elandra Bunn and Cynthia Annette Johnson. Elandra Bunn was found raped and strangled in Turner's neighborhood on June 5, 1987, and Cynthia Annette Johnson was found raped and strangled on February 22, 1997. The case went to trial in early 2014, and he was convicted on all first-degree murder counts in June of 2014. He received a second death sentence in August of 2014. After his first murder trial, he was transferred from the prison he was serving his sentence for the 2002 rape charge to California's death row in San Quentin Prison. This second death sentence doubles down on his fate to live out the rest of his life on death row. So for some final thoughts, I once again, we just we have a case where proper policing could have prevented at least some of these murders. I know yeah. we kind of brought it up a lot during the episode, but it's just like honestly looking into cases like this, like I could literally just feel my stomach drop because mm-hmm. there's so much murder and tragedy, but the victims barely made like a blip in the news. And it's just so hard to wrap my head around the fact that a community had to come together and like plead to be listened to it's just so like mind-boggling to me 
I know. I know. And then once again, we have, you know, not only that, we have police cutting corners and taking advantage of someone's mental deficiencies so they can get a confession and close a case and, you know, put somebody away for these brutal crimes that he didn't do. And to top it off, the real perp is running around raping, strangling and killing with impunity. It's just so infuriating. The This case, the Grim Sleeper, and it's just it gets me really angry and horrible like we said like wrongful convictions aren't actually justice just because no. they think the case is being closed quickly doesn't you know if it's not, it's the, not fair. the person responsible is not the one being convicted then it's not really justice it's not fair to the community it's not fair to the victims it's not very fair to the victim's family and it's not certainly not fair for the person being wrongly accused and put right. away I guess overall, I am glad that Chester Turner was finally brought to justice so the families could have closure. I think it's just a shame that it took so long and there were such glaring holes in the investigations. Like, mm-hmm. he was killing for, like, in spanning two decades. Yeah. And it just, it's, I guess you don't want to, like, dwell on the, like, what ifs, but it's like, what if, you know, he had been caught sooner, you know? Well, yeah, I mean, it's kind of hard not to think about that, I right. think. And, and... I think just coming back to this, especially after, you know, we did the Grim Sleeper and just it's just mind blowing that five serial killers were operating in South L.A. for years. Well, so at least five. I remember at least five. right? uh, Yeah. Yeah. And then so the creepy thing is, is there was five that they they've got like a a victim pool. Right. And they've connected uh, some of these victims to five people. Mm-hmm. due to like dna or mo or whatever and i think they only have names for three of them so there's two unidentified serial killers essentially who have victims attributed to them but they just don't know who's responsible for it and then they also have victims from around the same time period that aren't connected to any of those five so it could be more it's even more yes. disturbing if you kind of like it is explain it all out like that it's it's upsetting and disturbing and it's just like a real failure to that community i think on the part of the police department exactly yeah and that wraps up our show for this week so thank you for listening uh before we go we have some housekeeping first off we want to thank our researcher esther for helping us put this episode together thank you esther thank you esther and we want to say thank you to some of our listeners who took the time to leave us a five-star review so thank you to TC Attic 36, Kate 530, Film Vault Fan, and TS8704 for your reviews. Your reviews help us out a lot, and we really appreciate you taking the time to leave us the feedback. And do you want some misconduct merch? Well, guess what? We have a store set up. You can order t-shirts, mugs, hoodies, water bottles, magnets, and more. Our store is set up through Zazzle. And everything you purchase is made to order and drop shipped directly to you. And all commission earned on any purchases through the store go directly to the podcast. So it helps us keep the lights on and the research going. If you're interested, you can go to our website, www.misconductpodcast.com slash store or zazzle.com slash misconduct pod. And remember to always use the discount codes. They're always available. And I love coupon And I'm sure you do, too. So save yourself a little bit of money and it supports the show. And stay tuned to the end to hear a word from our friend Lainey at True Crime Fan Club. Yay, Lainey. And that wraps us up for another episode of Misconduct. Thank you for joining us. If you have a second, head on over to our Facebook group to discuss this week's case. 
We love our group and we really love being able to interact with you guys. So if you're not a member, join and one of our mods will add you ASAP. We'd love to hear your thoughts and opinions on the cases. So hop on over and let us know what you thought of today's case. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at MisconductPod. And we want to give a huge shout out to the Blank Tapes for our intro and outro music. Be sure to look them up on Bandcamp to check out more of their music. And if you have a case you'd like to see covered, drop us a line. Send it over to misconductpodcast at gmail.com and we will see you next week. Hi, I'm Lainey, host of the True Crime Fan Club podcast. If you're a true crime addict like I am, then my show is for you. I'll peel back the curtain and give you a glimpse into the life and crimes of some of the most demented minds. Check out the episode Broken Bonds and listen to a brother reveal a deeply held secret. Or hear about the day that the heavy metal community will never forget in the episode Dimebag. These episodes are just a sample of our catalog, so you have plenty to binge. Just search for True Crime Fan Club Podcast and any podcatcher. You won't want to miss an episode. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.